Before we dive into the word, let's just uh, go one more time before God and ask him to bless our time in the word today. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here to worship you. Lord, we're mindful of all of the other great churches that are in our community that are preaching the gospel today. And Lord, I just ask that, that what, it, what starts in your word would spark into a reformation, a revival here in Riverside, that people would come to you, understand how deeply you love them, and that from here we'll change the world. We thank you for your love and your goodness, Lord. We ask for transformation today, and that not one of us would leave the same way we walked in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I know I've mentioned this before. You might have heard me say, I grew up in a small town in southern Maine called Cape Elizabeth. And in Cape Elizabeth, there's a, a really famous uh, lighthouse called Portland Headlight. You might have seen pictures of it. George Washington commissioned its building back uh, when he was president. I don't even know how long ago that was. A long time ago. But other than that, Portland, Maine, Cape Elizabeth, Maine, not really famous for anything. So I grew up in a, a, like a really blue-collar, hard-working neighborhood in a very affluent, white-collar community. And, and so we didn't always have a lot of money to travel to different places, but where we went every summer was this little cabin on a beautiful lake at the very northern part of the lake, of the, the state of Maine. And it was a distant aunt's cabin, and she invited us to come up as much as we wanted to, and I absolutely loved it. There's pictures of me in diapers by the lake, just enjoying the sun. I would grow into just loving to be all day in the lake. One time I was in the lake so long that I had blisters on my shoulders from my sunburn. Not a good experience. But other than that, I loved it. And uh, growing up, we got to spend more and more time there. As my dad got more vacation time, we would spend all of our, our vacation at the lake. And as I got to about high school, the opportunity presented itself for my dad to buy the cabin. And so we got to spend even more time at the lake. And, and again, I grew up in a very affluent part of town, or in a very affluent town. And uh, all of the people that would not talk to me because they were, you know, out of my social strata. My dad didn't make quite enough money for me to hang out with, with these kids. But they would have lockers around me. And every, every year at the end of the school year, they'd always be having these conversations about the amazing things that they'd be doing. And it'd always sound, you know, well, Biffington, where are you spending your summer vacation? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Chesterfield, because Daddy is taking us to the French Riviera. And how about you? Oh, we're going to do the, the Disneyland Park Hopper this year. Oh, great. Which one are you going to? Well, all of them. We're going to start in Orlando, and then we're going to hop over to L.A., and then we're going to hop over to Euro Disney just to see how the Euro trash are doing this year. <laughs> and then they'd look at me, right? And Scott, where are you spending your vacation? And I'd always be so excited. I'd be like, yeah, we're going to my, my family's cabin in northern Maine for, for two whole weeks. And they'd look at me, and they'd do one of these. <laughs> how very droll. But for me, it was amazing. I used to look forward to every year when we were little kids, my mom would pack these things and give, a, give them to us like every hundred miles of the trip. Baseball cards and candy and gum. And it, she just made it so much fun. And, and when I was a junior in high school and my dad purchased the camp, it meant not only that I would get more time to relax at the lake, but it also meant that they would spend a couple weekends there, one at the beginning of the summer to open the camp, and one at the end of the summer to close the camp. And so this first year, they were going up for Memorial Day weekend, and they leave, and my brother says, all right, we're going to have a party. 
I've always lived my life out of fear. And as soon as he said that, I was like, nope, no party. We're not having a party. Are you nuts? He's like, yeah, we're having a party. And the thing about being two years younger and kind of scrawny and having a brother that liked to beat the crap out of you, the rules of democracy were not in order. So I had no voice in the matter. He started calling his friends. He said, hey, we're having a party at my house. It's going to be, you know, come over at 9 o'clock. He, you know, we had some friends at work that were willing to go into the grocery store and buy party supplies for us because, you know, we weren't old enough. And I'm just, like, freaking out, freaking out. And he's like, Scott, it's going to be fine. Just going to have a few people over. It's not going to be crazy. I'm like, sure. Those are famous last words. Famous last words. But I'm freaking out. So everybody comes over, and everybody's drinking beer, and I'm just, like, freaking out the whole time. And I come downstairs the next morning, and I look around, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Beer cans everywhere. There's, like, furniture tipped over. I look in the backyard. There's just, like, cigarette butts everywhere. And now I'm, like, really freaking out. So I run upstairs. I wake up my brother. And I'm like, Steve, you got to wake up right now. We have to get cleaning the house. He's like, why are you so afraid? Mom and dad aren't coming back till tomorrow. I was like, yeah, that's what they told us. But, like, what happens if they're up there and they're not having fun? What happens if they had a huge blowout fight? What happens if it's raining? What happens if they're in the car right now? on their way home. And you know, dad, dad comes with the keys of death and Hades in his hands. And I don't want to be around when he gets here. So he's like, all right, just relax. Just calm down. One of his friends had spent the night. He offered to help us clean up. So we came down, we had a plan. We're going to divide and conquer. He's like, all right, Scott, you go around and get all of the empty beer cans. I was like, that's fine. And I'm going to go to college on all of the money that I get for returning them. And he had his friend go around and tidy up all the furniture, make sure that there was no, you know, puddles of vomit anywhere, clean the carpet. And he was going to go and just make sure that the backyard was all cleaned up. And so we cleaned up, everything spotless, and I was still so afraid. I was afraid of what was going to happen when my mom and dad came home. I was afraid of what was the one thing that we missed. What was the one thing that we didn't clean up right? What was the one thing that we left out of place? What happens when my uncle who lives up the street calls him and said, yeah, it was really loud at your place Friday night. Is everything all right? I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out because I realized that it's not, wasn't just what I had done wrong, but it was that I had no confidence in how I was going to stand before my parents when they came in, knowing that I had violated the way that they taught me how to live my life. I couldn't stand before them and say, yeah, nothing happened here, nothing wrong here. Because I carried the shame of violating their trust. And you know, as we've been going through this Epic Life series, and John has been teaching his church what fellowship looks like. How to really love one another. And he gets into chapter 2 and he starts talking about Antichrist. And Antichrist isn't just something that's far off in the distance. He's something that's here now. He started... Many times it starts in the church, the spirit of Antichrist comes out. And as we get to the end of chapter 2, he's going to give us some very simple and practical advice for how to live amongst the Antichrist. So we're in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 28 and 29. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. I write these things to you. That's verse 26, if you're reading along. 
And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, he may, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So here's the thing, is that John is saying, be careful of Antichrist. He's not something that's just in the future. He's not just down the road. He's something that's here now. And he gets to these verses, and he's going to give us a very practical thing about how we can make sure that we're not giving in to the allure that Antichrist wants to seduce us with. So Pastor Jonathan did a great job last week of kind of uh, explaining what Antichrist meant. But before we can really unpack the practical advice, I kind of just want to uh, start with the first point is identifying the spirit of Antichrist in your life. See, John does a, a really amazing thing, right? He takes this idea that Daniel presents in Daniel 7. And if you have ever tried to read the book of Revelation, I emphasize the word try to because it's kind of confusing sometimes. But John takes this idea that is deposited in Daniel 9 and really sorts of expounds on it in Revelation 13 through 17. And it would have been an idea that would have been very familiar to his church audience, whether they had come out of a Jewish background or whether they were Gentiles and now had been saved through Christ. Right? Because in, in Daniel 7, it talks about how one would come and, and do this abomination that causes desolation. And the Jews were familiar with this because Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple hundred years before Christ came, went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that that's an abomination that causes desolation. But John's Gentile audience would have been familiar with it too. As he explains in Revelation 13, there's this ruler that's going to come. And he's going to try to destroy the people of God. And John takes this theological idea and he opens the door on it by saying it's not just down the road. It's something that's going to happen right now as well. So there's five identifying characteristics of Antichrist. The Antichrist that's among us now that we can look for. And the first one is that Antichrist can be identified when we deny Jesus with our mouths. So it's easy to think of Peter's denial, right? Jesus says, you know, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And people come up to him and say, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter says, well, no, that's not me. That's a denial of Christ. And as Pastor Jonathan unpacked it for us last Last week, it's not just that we deny Jesus with our mouths when people ask us if we're a Christian. It's also when people come and say, this Jesus, you got the picture all wrong. He was a great man, a great teacher, but he's no savior. That's a denial of Christ as well. And the other way that we deny him with our mouths is that when we verbally express our adoration for something or someone in ways that surpass the ways we express our adoration and love for Christ. So the first way that we can identify Antichrist is when there's a denial of Jesus with our mouths. But Antichrist can also be found when we deny Jesus with our lives. You know, throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples repeatedly, they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. They will know you're my disciples by the fruit that your life is bearing. 
And so here in 1 John, and as we have been going through this epic life, John is telling his people that they will know that you are Christ's disciples by the way that you love one another. He says that if any one of you says that you are of Christ but hates his brother, then we'll know that you're not telling the truth. The spirit of Antichrist can be found in your life when you deny Christ by the way you live. The third thing is that the spirit of Antichrist wants to destroy our fellowship. Right? John does a really amazing job of unpacking this in Revelation 13. The Antichrist that comes is going to be hell-bent on destroying the people of God. And I don't mean just, you know, come in and, and start an argument about, you know, what color the new rug should be. Have you ever been in a church where that, like, split a church? I'm not talking about this kind of splintering and fracturing. He wants to literally wipe the church of God off the face of the earth. And for us, it it means that this heart, the spirit of Antichrist comes in and infiltrates us. And it wants to destroy our fellowship. You know, I always think about Judas, right? And I can't imagine that Jesus didn't know what was in Judas' heart when he recruited him to be one of his twelve. One of his inner circle. Jesus knew he knew that at the end of the road, Jesus was going to sell, Judas was going to sell him out. He knew that at the end of his ministry, Judas would be the one that said, Here, I'll betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And you know, the thing about it is, in our church, we realize that Antichrist wants to destroy the church, but it seems that we're so often content to roll up our sleeves and do the work for him. The way that we reject people from being part of our fellowship. The way that we won't allow Judas to come in and be part of our inner circle. And you know, the reality is, is that, yeah, there's a lot that we can learn from people who want to come into our fellowship and and try to destroy us from the inside. But the, the other reality, there's a lot that they can learn about Jesus by being around us. You know, Judas, when he realized what he'd done, went to the high priest and said, look, I've made a huge mistake. Please take back the silver. And he said, I know that the one that I've betrayed, I know that his blood is innocent blood. And I can't imagine how many people who come in with a heart to to sow dissension and split us up will be actually grafted into the church of God because of the way that we love them. But the reality is that the spirit of Antichrist wants to destroy the church. Fourthly, Antichrist can be found when we allow our obstacles to become more powerful than God. The spirit of Antichrist can be found when we allow our obstacles to become more powerful than God. You know, we all face things in life that the adversary wants us to use to to pull us away from God, to pull our focus away from God. You know, I don't know if you're really well connected here, but there's a lot of people in our church right now that are walking through a really hard season. And, you know, the reality is that the spirit of Antichrist wants to use those things to pull them away from God. And it happens when we allow the challenges of our life, when we allow the obstacles of life to have the power that is only God's. I mean, isn't it true that that things in life that we face, they want to divert our path away from God. They want to avert us away from the love of God. But how often do we give them power over our lives that's only God's? We give, you know, the situations, the struggles, the challenges, a sovereignty in our lives that is only God's. And and rather than, than trust God, 
We wait to see how it's all going to play out. Rather than bring our needs to God, we just kind of wait for all the things to hit the fan and then just pick up the pieces. And, and the spirit of Antichrist asks us to do that. Asks us to take our eyes off God and worry more about what's in front of us. The spirit of Antichrist wants us to give more power to our circumstances than we give to God. And you know, the reality is that for John and his church, that obstacle was the Roman Empire. You know, for, for people that he was writing to, they would have understand, understood that, you know, it's, it's not easy to be a Christian in Rome. We're going to hear about Nero in a second. And there's legends that Nero would dip Christians in oil and set them on fire and hang them on stakes to light his garden. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, you know, pretty much more miserable than anything I've been through. And into this environment, John is begging them to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He wants to divert your attention, your trust, away from God and focus it on your circumstances. And the last way that we can identify the spirit of Antichrist is because Antichrist pulls us to worship things that aren't Christ. You know, there's a, a famous, famous um, atmosphere in the Roman Empire, too, that the, the Caesars would declare themselves as God. And I don't know if you remember, a few months ago, Pastor Jonathan talked about the image on the coin and, and how Caesar would imprint his image on the coin. And he says, well, if it's Caesar's, give it back to Caesar. And it wasn't just like our currency where there's a, a picture of the president I heard that they're changing some of the bills, so we're going to see different historical figures from our past. It's not that they're commemorating Caesar and what he's done for them. It's an idol. They would have worshipped Caesar, and that's how he would have wanted it. And into the, this first church, John is saying, watch out for that. Anything that pulls your worship, your adoration away from God, away from Christ, is the spirit of Antichrist among you. And so into this culture, into this context, John is saying, watch out, because Antichrist is coming, and he's going to try to do all of these things to destroy your fellowship, to destroy your intimacy with God. And for John, it might seem like a, a kind of complex conversation for us, but for John, there's one simple remedy. The second point this morning, abide in Christ. It's just that simple. You know, I, I love that Pastor Jonathan the other day talked about, you know, how we're, we're so inclined to get out our prophecy charts and, and we want to see when everything's coming and we read the newspaper and say, okay, so this is going on in the Middle East. What does that mean in terms of Daniel 17 and all of these things? And, and what does it mean for when Christ comes back? Okay, I got to, you know, color code everything. And John says, don't worry about all of that. Abide in Christ. And six times, in, just in chapter 2, he tells us to abide in Christ. It's one of his favorite words. If you read the Gospel of John, it's all throughout the Gospel of John. It's an idea. It simply means remain. Remain in Christ. When the forces of Antichrist come into your, into your fellowship and they want to pull you apart. When the spirit of Antichrist comes into your life and it wants to divert your attention, your worship, your love for Christ away from Christ. It wants to crush your faith. John says, abide in Christ. You know, I can imagine that if, if you or I were to walk into the doctor's office tomorrow and the doctor would look at me and say, Scott, okay, look, here's the deal. I've done some tests. 
and uh, you, you've got some serious things going on. Your cholesterol's through the roof. You know, you're starting to so, show some signs of hypertension and uh, just really concerned. So I want to start you on an exercise regimen, and I want you to change your diet. Here's some ways that you can change it. And I'd leave the doctor's office, and I'd say, okay, great. And I'd get to work. I'd roll up my sleeves. I'd start working out. I'd start eating better. And two weeks later, if I went to the doctor, he said, Scott, this is great news. You've lost some weight, but better than that, your cholesterol's down. Your heart's responding. It's, it's much more healthy than it was even two weeks ago. And I would leave the doctor's office in a better place. And I guarantee you that if I don't remain in the changes that I've made, I'm going to go right back to my previous condition. And that's what John is saying to us. He's saying that when you face these things that want to destroy your fellowship, when you face these things that want to to destroy your faith in Christ, just remain in Christ. Remain in Christ. And what does that mean? Cultivate your intimacy with God. It means be in the Word. It means pray to God. But in terms of what John wants us to see in 1 John, it also means cultivate your fellowship. It means that not only am I going to show up to regroup on Tuesday night, but I'm going to invest in people. And I'm going to open myself up so that they can invest in me. So that they can pour God's love into me. It means that I'm going to be committed to coming and worshiping God on Sunday. To being gathered together with God's people. It means that when the things in life that that want to distract me, when the things in life that want to divert me away from God pop up, it means that I'm going to surround myself with godly influences that are going to help me stay focused, that are going to help me keep my faith in God's power and not transfer that power to the things that are in my way. It means that I am going to lead other people to see how amazing Jesus is and how much he loves them. It means that I am going to always do everything that I can to cultivate my relationship with God and help other people do that as well. Create the fellowship of the church. And here's how it plays out for John, right? He says, abide in Christ so that you may be confident when he appears and not shrink back in shame. The second point this morning is a weight on Christ. A weight on Christ. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you, you're kind of waiting for someone or something to happen and, and you don't feel like you have a lot of confidence. That was me the first time that I met Janelle. So, and I found out later that I actually had no reason to be confident either, but I'll get into that in a second. So, Janelle, I don't know if you know this, but Janelle and I actually met on Match.com. And so we had the opportunity to chat for a couple weeks. The first time I asked her if she'd like to get together for coffee, she said, I'd love to, but I have this thing in my church called Relevant One Day. So I'm going to be there for that, which is a shameless plug. Relevant One Day is just in a couple weeks. And if you're not married, come out. Great things might happen. So I said, no, oh, no problem. So we, we finally set it up, and uh, we, we met for coffee. And, you know, I had just been four years removed from uh, just a failed marriage. So already I'm not really confident in coming out. And uh, I am, <laughs> here's the deal. So we, we met a couple times. And uh, the, the first day that, like, I, you know, I want to make our relationship official. And so we, we rode this Ferris wheel in Irvine. You can see it from the five. 
And we just kind of walked around. We were chatting. And she brought me into like three different stores. And she was like, hey, do you like these flip-flops? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. They're nice. And so two weeks later, she shows up for church. And she's like, hey, I brought you a gift. And I was like, okay, cool. And she gives me a bag. And it's new Reef flip-flops. And I'm, I'm starting to do the math in my head. I'm like, you don't like my shoes, do you? And she's like, nope. And it gets worse than that because as I'm waiting for her to come to coffee, I'm freaking out. And then she tells me, like, yeah, the first time I showed up, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work out. And I was like, why would you think that? I was like, she's like, okay, so here's the deal. Is that the sandals you were wearing, I swear I saw them in the What Would Jesus Wear catalog. You know, because I, I come from Maine and it was like the flip-flops with the back strap. And it's not cool in California, but I had no idea. And she's like, and then you're like, so I started at your shoes, and then I worked my way up, and you were wearing cargo shorts. And I was like, yeah. She's like, that's so 1992. And I was like, okay. And then she's like, and then I looked at your shirt, and I'm like, and I thought, he's wearing something from the Freddy Krueger line of couture, because it's like the maroon and blue striped t-shirt. I thought I looked cool. She said, you have no right to be confident in the way that you presented yourself to me that morning. But anyway, if, if you can kind of get the feeling that there, there's things that we wait for that we don't have confidence in. And, and you know, right around the time that John, uh, that John was writing this, there was a, a rumor, a legend that was springing up around Nero. And, and it was something of a theological bad joke. All right? So I need you to play along with me, right? Knock, knock. Nero. Nero's coming back, and he's going to kill all y'all. Right? So here's the deal. Nero was vicious. He was a vicious, disgusting... Just let that sink in for a second. (laughs) Nero was disgusting. And and he did things that if I even repeated them in church, he would send Pastor Jonathan an email and be like, he can never speak again here. I don't... It was just horrible. And, And Nero was accused of starting the fire that burned Rome. There's a rumor going around that this piece of land that he, he wanted to build his palatial estate on. And there was this rumor going around that he actually started the fire so that he could clear out the land and build his palace on it. And he was accused by his countrymen of destroying the city. So he wanted revenge. And it got so bad that it drove him to kill himself. And the other side of that is that he hated Christians too. I already told you that there's rumors and legends that he would light them on fire to light his garden. But he hated the church. So when he died in 68 AD, there started to be this rumor that he was going to come back from the dead. And there was going to, when he got here, it wasn't going to be good for anybody. He was going to destroy the city and kill the Romans because of the way that they treated him and accused him of, of starting the fire. And he was going to kill the Christians because he believed that they actually burned the city so that they could frame him for doing it. So there was this this fear associated with his name. A lot of what John unpacks for us about the Antichrist in Revelation 13 through 17 is built on this understanding of what Nero was and what he wanted to do if he had the opportunity to come back to life. And so you can imagine, for some people in the church, they might be thinking, Christ is coming back? Christ is coming, what, well, when Nero comes back, he's going to slaughter us all. What's going to happen when Christ comes back? And John wants you to see that there's nothing to be afraid of. And it all hangs on how much 
and how well, how well you're abiding in Christ. You know, the reality is that if that you're firmly planted in Christ, when Christ comes back, there's nothing to be afraid of. If you're doing the things that Christ asked you to do to, to build up the fellowship of the church, to proclaim the gospel to people that you meet, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's going to be a glorious day. There's nothing to shrink back in. Have full confidence that when Christ comes back, he's going to pat you on the back and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And John wants you to see that abiding in Christ should have this manifestation in the way that you live day in and day out with confidence, not shrinking back in shame. And you'll be excited when Christ returns. Finally this morning, the last thing that John says is to acknowledge Christ and his righteousness. Acknowledge Christ and his righteousness. John says that if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does righteous things has been born of him. I have to tell you that when I first read this passage, it, kind of, it was kind of hard for me to listen to. When I was in college, it was uh, early 90s. It was a glorious time. I had long flowing hair. I sat out in the quad strumming my guitar and smoking weed. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, that was the 60s. That was my dad's college experience. This is where I vet out all of my stand-up routine business, so thank you for your non-response. I'll know to cut that out. But when I was in college, I went to this little Bible college in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, me and my fellow nerds would kind of sit together. We'd debate theology. And this book came out called The Gospel According to Jesus. It's written by John MacArthur. He pastors a huge church in L.A., and it started this huge like, debate within the church and the academy about what it means to be saved. Can you be saved by accepting Jesus as your Savior but denying him as Lord in your life? And it started this huge debate. And so my friends and I would sit up late, in, late into the night, you know, going back and forth about the merits of his argument, the things that other people were saying as a, as a counter-argument. And it wasn't very long before the debates turned into very angry, heated discussions. And it wasn't very long until the angry, heated discussion started splintering relationships around the crew that I hung out with. And you know, the thing about it for me was that it's kind of crazy because this, this whole line of thinking kind of turns us into fruit inspectors, right? How, how, much, how much fruit is your life producing? Is it producing enough to demonstrate that you're in Christ? Or is it producing enough bad fruit to say, oh, I don't know about this guy? And so I was concerned because I didn't want my friends to come up to me and say, Scott, you know, we're a little concerned. You know, I counted from your Facebook profile and things that I've seen. There's five amazing things that you've done for God this week. But there's these seven things that kind of tip the scale. And so when I read this passage, I, I thought to myself, is this what John's kind of pointing us to? Does he want us to sit in church and see and look around and see how everybody's acting and say, no, no, you're antichrist. You're not welcome here. Is he saying that he wants us to judge each other by, by the, the words that come off our mouth and how well we proclaim and adore and worship Christ? I don't think that's his point. Because all of this hangs on how well we're holding our fellowship together. The idea that John is presenting here, it's kind of inherited family characteristics, right? He's saying that 
Your God is a righteous God. So you'll be righteous too. And so it plays out in the way that we we treat each other. He's saying that if you are of God, you'll love each other. You'll support each other and encourage each other. You'll proclaim Christ into situations where it seems like Christ is far removed. But it also serves as a warning. It serves as a warning that when people come into your body, and when they want to sow division, when they want to pull you apart, when they want to, to, to take your faith and, and seduce you into placing it into something else, you'll be able to stand up and say, no. That's not the righteousness that comes from my Father. That's not the righteousness of the God who loves me. See, righteousness is about, this righteousness that John is talking about is a way to preserve the fellowship preserve the unity of our church, to preserve our faith in Christ. It's so that when I look in the mirror, I'm measuring myself up to the standard that God has established for me to walk in. And when we look around as God's church, it's so that we can establish ourselves in the righteousness that God has established for his bride. You know, I think it's interesting this whole idea of the epic life. When we, we come to this passage and we, we learn what it means to abide in Christ. When it, when it, what it means to have the confidence that I'm standing in right relationship with God. What it means to, to measure my righteousness against the righteousness of God. It seems to me that the reality is that there's a downside to that as well. And it kind of comes out in the question of how are you living? Are you living a life that you have full confidence that if God returned right now, if Jesus appeared right now, that he would look at the way that you've sown love into this church, that you've done things to to build the unity of this church? Or would he be concerned that you're doing things that are fracturing the fellowship? If Jesus were to appear today and say, hey, who do they say that I am? And we could say, oh, you know, some say you're a good teacher, a moralist, great philosopher. And when he turns to us and says, who do you say that I am? Could you proclaim with Peter that you're the Christ, the son of the living God? And when you use their yardstick of righteousness on someone else, have you already applied it to yourself? If you can sit here this morning and, and, and feel that I, can't, I couldn't stand before God full of confidence, I'd just like to invite you to take a moment and renew your, your commitment to God. If this is the first time that, that you've heard about Jesus today and, and you, you're ready to, to make a statement of faith and say, Jesus, I want to be ready for when you come. I want to, to do everything that I can to build into the unity of this church. I'd just like to take a moment right now and invite you to come before God and say, God, I'm ready for you to appear. I am going to walk out of this building today confident knowing that when you come back, I'm ready to meet you.
close your eyes and let's pray. God, thank you so much for the grace that is ours in you. Thank you for the way that you love us. Lord, we thank you that despite the the work of the adversary, despite the things that he wants to do to tear us apart, despite the spirit of Antichrist being alive on this earth, we thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, that there is nothing that can, can pull us away from your grace, that there is nothing that can separate us from you, Lord, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we commit today to abide in you. Lord, we commit to abide in you to resist the seduction. Lord, we commit to abide in you to resist the, the, the impulses that want to tear apart the fabric of our fellowship and unity. And Lord, we commit our lives to you. Lord, we ask that we would walk out of here with the confidence that comes from being in relationship with you. The confidence that comes in building each other up. Walking beside each other when times are dark and hard. The confidence that comes from contributing to the help of this church. The epic life. If today you're making a decision for Christ, if Today is the day that you want to start your relationship with Christ with your eyes closed and your heads bowed. I'd just like to invite you to, to raise your hand and look at me. If today is the day that you're ready to recommit your life, throw your hand up. Amen. Father, thank you for the lives that you're touching in this room today. Thank you for the way that you're drawing us to you. Lord, we celebrate you today. We thank you. And Lord, we just ask that you continue to help us be a church and live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.